0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you increases your love and knowledge of Jesus and answers any questions that you might have
1: about him. Our passage this morning is John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak as, just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him.
0: Thanks, Taylor. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for, Thank you for that energy. I love that. My name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in the Gospel of John, and we've been for quite some time. We're in John chapter 8 today. I'm excited to preach um, what the Lord has really um, been teaching me through the, my study of this passage. But before we go ahead and do that, I wanted to actually take several uh, minutes to pray together, to kind of lead a pastoral prayer right now. Uh, myself and the pastors sense that right now in the life of this church, and if you're in community with one another, you might know this, but there's just a lot of suffering, a lot of struggle, a lot of, we sense spiritual warfare happening. In our community right now. And so I just want to take some time to pray uh, that God would be with us, that he would give us victory, that we would sense his presence in our life. So let's go ahead and bow our heads together and agree with me in in prayer right now. Lord Jesus, we come to you as beggars now. You are the bread of life. We hunger. You say, come to me and drink. We thirst, Lord. And we know we need you, and we can't make it through this life without you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. If we do not abide in you, we will not bear fruit. We will not live. We will struggle. And Lord, we know that our war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers, against the wicked one, our enemy of our soul who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He prowls around like a roaring lion to do so. And so, God, right now we want to settle our heart's hope on you, Jesus, you have all authority, you have all victory. When you died your death on the cross, Satan, our accuser, was thrown out of heaven. He has no more words against us, no more accusations against us. We are righteous and forgiven. We are dressed in the very perfection of you, Jesus. God, I pray that you would give us a clean conscience today. I pray that you would uh, allow us by your Spirit to believe that we are free free from guilt, free from sin, free from performance, free from trying to be somebody for the sake of other people being pleased with us. Whatever might be, Lord, the struggle or the lie that we're believing today, God, I pray that your truth would confront it and heal us of these lies that we believe that have entered into our lives and wreaked havoc in our lives. Lord, we want to settle our minds in truth and live in the truth. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise and acknowledge right now that you have all victory and authority over the darkness. The light has entered the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, we're thankful that we have a great high priest who has gone before us, been tempted and tried as we have, yet without sin. And he tells us to approach your throne, God, our Father, with confidence to find mercy and grace in our time of need. And so we do that now. We come to you broken. We come to you sinful. We come to you with regrets and mistakes. We come to you, Lord, weak and sad we ask God for mercy and grace in our time of need. God, our confidence is in you and our hope is in you. God, help us to turn from lies and turn from self now, trust in self, and to collapse into you, Jesus, and rest in you and your promises and in your great love for us. God, be with us now. We ask that the Spirit of God in us would cause the truth that is spoken today to bear on our hearts that we might believe what is true. Spirit, lead us into righteousness, convict us of sin, comfort us and give us assurance of salvation today. God, meet with us. We are in need of you. Give us a sense of your nearness and a sense of your love for us and your interest and consideration of us. You are near to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. So come near Jesus. Draw near to us as we draw near to you. We ask this in your sweet name, amen. (laughs) So we're in John chapter 8. And if you uh, have read your Bible before you, you know that we're skipping. Uh, John chapter 753 through chapter 8 verse 11, and if you are in your Bibles, you see a little footnote where it says that that portion of Scripture is not in the earliest manuscripts. So I, the pastors, and the overwhelming consensus of scholars and commentators and theologians is that that portion, the story of of the woman, the sinful woman who Jesus says says, uh, you may depart who has, any sin against, who has any, anything against you. That classic story, which probably is true, probably happened. We just don't believe the Roman consensus is that it's not a part of John's gospel, that he himself did not write that. There's a few reasons for that. I just want to go ahead and speak to it just for a moment. We have a lot to cover, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. But the reasons why we don't think that that is of John and therefore authoritative, a part of the final canon of Scripture, is because it doesn't fit thematically or chronologically with where we're at in the story. You'll notice that uh, we're still in the same scene as last week, but that portion that is uh, you know, not original to the Bible, we believe, and to John's gospel, it doesn't really fit with the story. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an inconsistency there. Also grammatically, just translators and, and um, uh, linguists say that the language that's used in the original Greek in that portion of Scripture just does not match the tone and the feel and the word bank that John uses throughout his whole entire gospel. Additionally, no church fathers reference this uh, story, and it doesn't really make an appearance until the 5th century. And the manuscript evidence that we have covered and recovered over the last millennia and more have proven that... Uh, If this is not a part of the earliest documents that we have. We have so many manuscripts that date so closely to the original date of when John would have written his gospel, so we know that this is not original to John. But also, this shouldn't cause us to freak out or have doubt or be like, whoa, what are we reading here? Is this true? Because we, again, like I said, have over a millennia of archaeological digging and manuscript evidence that gives us tons tons of confidence that what we have in our hands today right now is God's authoritative word, is, is what he intends for us to have and nothing else. And so it doesn't shake our confidence, but we just want to be able to recognize right now that uh, that's not part of John's original gospel, so I'm not going to preach it, but it probably happened. It can encourage you if you want to read it on your own time later. All right, <clears throat> so back to the story that we're in. Since John chapter 5, Jesus has been essentially making a turn towards the cross. And as he does that, he has created division. He has provoked hostility, and that hostility continues to increase. There's a ton of debate controversy over who Jesus is. If you were just to read John chapters 6 through 12 in one sitting, you'll see over and over and over again how all kinds of people just can't make up their minds about Jesus and have different dynamics in their relationship with Jesus. Some are curious, some hate him and want to kill him. Jesus is just provoking uh, hostility and opinion and division about him. Uh, He really um, isn't holding back at all, holding back no punches. So on the last day of this great feast, this is the Feast of Booths happening right now. You remember last week, Jesus stands up and cries out, Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus says that at the time that the, the priest would have been uh, dumping out containers of water in the early morning sacrifice, which was a, a symbol of their Uh, their anticipation that God would pour out his spirit during the messianic age. Jesus is doing something very purposeful there, saying, yeah, this celebration, this feast, this ritual, it's all about me. I am coming to pour out the spirit. Come to me and drink. So quite a statement, quite a claim, obviously controversial. The Pharisees, uh, they don't like what Jesus says. They disagree with him, totally disagree with him. They're very condescending about it. So Jesus then, in response to them, And this is our passage for today. He says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, Jesus is saying this during the Feast of Booths. And during the whole week of this seven day celebration in the courtyard of women, which is just outside the temple, there were these massive globes, these massive lamps that were lit all week, which was a symbol of their hope that the Messiah would come, the messianic age would be upon them, Jesus is now making another claim. Right at a very um, sensitive moment, a very crucial moment, he's saying, yeah, those globes, that, that this feast that we do every single year, it's been fulfilled. I am here. I am the light of the world. I am the hope that you've been waiting for. And specifically, again, the, the Feast of Booths, you remember, is Is the people of Israel, this Jewish community, they are doing this every year to commemorate how they were wandering through the wilderness after Egypt on their way to the promised land. And in that wandering, God's presence led them in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud of smoke by day. So that means at night, when it's dark, God's presence lit the way, gave them guidance. During the day, in the hot Arabian desert, That cloud of smoke was like sunscreen. It was like air conditioning for them on their hot journey. So God's presence was like a comfort and a guide to God's people throughout that wandering. And Jesus is saying, I am that presence. I have come to give you guidance. I have come to give you comfort. I am the light of the world. Life is truly found in me. So obviously, huge statement, right? The Pharisees just cannot accept what Jesus is saying. It's not that they just will not accept it. It's that they cannot. There's a difference. They have zero ability to accept that he is the light of life. Now, the question that we're going to have to pursue today is why is that? What's happened to them? What's going on inside of them that has rendered their ability to believe in Jesus dead? That's what we're going to see today. So three points. The life of darkness, we're going to spend a great deal of time on that. The life of light, and the light pierces darkness. Those are our three points for today that we're going to go through. So let's first look at the life of darkness. Verse 13 says this, so the Pharisees, they say to Jesus, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. He says these claims, I'm the lie of the world. They say, You can't just come and make a claim about yourself that has no uh, substance to it. See, in the ancient Jewish culture, their custom is that a person's claims, they they can't be self-referential. There has to be a witness. There has to be someone who corroborates that claim. And then go down to verse 17. We keep on seeing some of the things, the customs, the codes that they live according to. Uh, Jesus tells them this is why they're doing that. Uh, He says, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. So if you looked up the origin of this social code, the need for a witness, in the law of Moses, God required that any claim of criminal activity be attested with at least two witnesses. But here, these Pharisees, the religious elites of this day, the purists, uh, they have taken that principle that was only really in the context of criminal activity, criminal claim, and they've applied it more broadly and extensively here into a situation where you need more than one witness to verify the claims of who you really are. So we should see, yet again, the Pharisees' way of things. Their culture, their social code is creating yet another barricade between them and Jesus. Now, Jesus isolates another cultural idea that's keeping them far from him. In verse 21, he says to them, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, Jesus is not saying, if you were paying attention as I read that, that he is going to heaven, and they'll try to follow him there. He's not saying that. He's saying he's going to heaven, but they'll keep seeking the counterfeit Messiah. The counterfeit of him. He's going to go, but they're going to seek somebody like him still, even after he is gone. Now look, I know you get tired of hearing it, because we like say this every single week, it pops up in John, but the reason that they reject Jesus, why they cannot accept Jesus, is because they thought the Messiah would be a person who would come and restore glory and power and status to them, who would overthrow the oppression of Rome. They wanted a Messiah warrior king And I know we get tired of hearing that. It's like every single week we think to ourselves, how could they miss it? How could they misread the Old Testament this badly? Why does this continually happen? Are they dull? Are they dense? Like what is going on here? When I was in my undergraduate theology class, Uh, We were studying Israel's exiles throughout their history. They were exiled uh, out of their land a number of times. They were attacked by Assyria. They went to Babylon, then Persia, and now Rome. So they've been exiled a number of times because of their sin, their failure to care for the vulnerable, their their failure to worship God and God alone. They committed idolatry, and so they were exiled from the land continually. They just didn't get it. Over and over, this happens to them. I remember raising my hand in class and asking the professor, like, what's going on? You know, my like you know my my youthfulness and my zeal like what's their problem? Why can't they just get get it together? Why can't they just understand what to do and then do it right? You know why? What's the disconnect here? And you know my professor graciously chuckles to himself and warmly and tenderly says, "We are no different than them, are we? We forget all the time what God has spoken to us." Essentially, This is far more relatable than we like to admit that we are like them. We are like the Pharisees. No matter how clear God's ways and purposes are, we often walk through life blind to them, just like the Pharisees did. Now, Jesus reveals the reason why. Why there's that disconnect. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one in the same sense that they are at least. Jesus certainly is a judge, but not in the sense that they are right now. So here's what Jesus is saying. He is from heaven. He will return to heaven, which means he comes from the realm of truth that transcends all time and place. Jesus is of the truth. He lives according to the truth. He believes the truth. He operates according to the truth because he is from the realm of truth that transcends all time. But they, he says, judge according to the flesh. They have a different criteria for their judgment, for their decision-making, a more superficial one. They judge according to the flesh, which means they judge according to appearances. They judge according to their prejudices. They judge according to their cultural ideologies, So because they judge according to ideas of their time, those social codes, those cultural norms, the Pharisees that they've adopted, the flesh, because they live according to the flesh, Jesus says, I don't match your profile. You can't believe I'm the Messiah because you have a totally different profile of Messiah in mind. And he doesn't have a witness, at least in their minds, because They can't see who he truly is because they think he should be a warrior king. And now later on, Jesus says it in a different way. Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Same idea as before. We and them operate according to present ideas. Jesus does not. His way of life, his teachings transcend our ideas, our present-day ideologies. When Jesus says they are of the world, that means they have been infiltrated by the world and its way of thinking, okay? So all in all, what John, the author, is revealing to us, what we're supposed to learn is that we are products of our time and culture. We are of the world. We judge according to the flesh. And usually, the ideas that we have adopted from our present time and our culture are counter to the way of Jesus and his ideas. And often, we have no idea that we carry within us ideas that are opposed to the kingdom of Jesus. And because these ideas are contradictory to truth. We are of the world of the flesh. Jesus is of heaven of the realm of truth. Because we carry within ourselves these ideas that are contradictory to the truth, these ideas are rightfully called lies. We don't even know it, but we live by lies. The Pharisees did, and so do we. Now, what I'm about to say here is crucial. I don't want you to miss this. Okay. Ideology and lies that enter our minds eventually take control of our hearts and then our bodies and then our lives, so much so that we become incapable of seeing and receiving truth. Let me show you this in this passage. This is exactly what has happened to the Pharisees. They can't comprehend Jesus. They can't seem to receive the meaning of his words. They're so captured by their cultural ideologies that they're rendered dual and incapable of literally understanding his words. So when Jesus says that he is from the Father, that the Father is with him, in verse 19, they ask, where is your Father? It just doesn't click for them. It doesn't make sense for them. Or when he says that he is going somewhere that they cannot come, in verse 22, they ask among themselves, is he going to kill himself? Because they think that suicide in this time would send you directly to Hades. And then when they ask, who are you? (laughs) Who are you, Jesus? Who are you really? He replies and tells them in verse 25, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. They just can't get these ideas into their minds and into their hearts. They're incapable of receiving any of Jesus' words. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they just cannot, will not understand the point that you are making? And you say it in the clearest way. It's painstaking. It's slow. It's detailed. It takes a lot of time. But no matter how clear you make your point, It just does not compute. Have you ever had that kind of conversation with somebody before? It's because, why? What's going on there? They've been programmed by their ideas that they believe, and that's their only mode of operation. They view the world, and they interpret everything through a present lens that is cemented in place, and that's what has happened to these Pharisees. They cannot see the truth. They literally just, they cannot see the truth. So look at verses 16 through 19. Jesus tells them that he has a corroborator, a witness. He's not alone in his claims. Who is that person who's his witness? 16. Yet even I do do judge, even if I do judge, my judgments are true, for it is not I alone who judge. But I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to them again, to, to him, Where's your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would also know my father. They, they, they cannot detect the father present in Jesus' life, they cannot detect this spiritual connection Jesus has with God because they judge according to the flesh and according to the world's standards. They've been penetrated by ideas of the present age. The lies they have believed have made them deaf and blind spiritually so they cannot see. Now, all of us in here are infected and enslaved with ideas that are counter to the way of Jesus. And I choose those words carefully. We are infected and we are enslaved with ideas and uh, and uh it's interesting actually neuroscience uh, actually is proving this if you don't believe me go do a little research on neurobiology specifically how thoughts that enter the mind especially in images create neural pathways in our brains which then create dna proteins in our nervous systems which are then disseminated throughout our bodies and become part of us and likely are then embedded into our very genetics and passed down to our children and our children's children. So we literally, okay, what I'm saying is we carry in our bodies lies that dominate us and dominate our way of living. And all it takes is a lie to settle in our thoughts, then our emotions, then our desires, and from there they form our choices and then our habits until ultimately and finally our muscle memory. And that's why the Bible tells us that we are slaves to sin. We are born slaves to sin and we, without God's power, become more enslaved to to sin. So think about your body's reactions. Think about when your heart rate increases, when you get nervous, when you get excited, when you feel awkward, when you feel afraid. Those are all likely traced back to an idea that you committed to your mind long ago that has run its course through literally your entire being. Until now, it's a part of your instincts, a part of your unconscious habits. And this is why people sometimes will not change. No matter how clear the argument or obvious their error, their bodies literally will not let them accept that the cultural ideas that they have adopted are actually lies. Several months ago, I realized this was happening in me that I had adopted into my mind, even as a Christian and a pastor, I had adopted into my mind ideas of success that were of the flesh and of the world. And I noticed over the course of time in our pastor's meetings that we would have, that if somebody said something or disagreed with me on something that was contradictory to like my need to be successful and my need for things in my mind and my heart to be realized that were very attached to me and Joe, you know, very attached to Joey, I would get angry, start getting angry. I, I would start, uh, or I'd start despairing and becoming discouraged. Or I would, my heart rate, heart rate would literally start increasing. And any tension, any, any, any um, dialogues that the pastors and I would get, get into in those meetings was because of me. It was my fault. Because I had adopted the lie of what success was. And literally months ago, I had to repent and apologize to the pastors because I had let lies into my body and they were dominating me. It happens to all of us. Dallas Willard uh, is an author of a book called Renovation of the Heart and he says we truly live at the mercy of our ideas. And it's true. What you believe matters. It matters, it incredibly matters. Now imagine if you were to go on believing lies without changing? What would happen? What would happen to you if you went on without changing? Jesus tells us what would happen to us is we would die. We would experience death. Look at verse 21. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, I'm going away, you'll seek me, and you will die in your sin. Verse 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now Jesus isn't referring to physical death. He's referring to spiritual death. Back in Genesis, our first parents, when they believed the lie that they could be God of their own life, that they could control their own life and they no longer needed God, when they believed that lie, God told them that they would experience death. And then, of course, we know what happens. They disobey. They break trust with God. They become gods of their own lives. And what happens right away? They don't drop dead. They don't physically expire, but they experience death separation and alienation. They're exiled out of God's presence into the realm of lies. Author and pastor John Mark Comer in a book called Live No Lies summarizes how it's possible for cultural ideas, these lies, to lead us into spiritual death, and he writes this. It'll be behind me on the screen too. The ideas that we believe in our minds and then let into our bodies give shape to the trajectory of our souls. Put another way, they shape how we live and who we become. When we believe truth, that is, ideas that correspond to reality, we show up to reality in such a way that we flourish and thrive. We show up to our bodies, to our sexuality, to our interpersonal relationships, and above all, to God himself in a way that is congruent With the Creator's wisdom and good intentions for His creation. As a result, we tend to be happy. But when we believe lies, ideas that are not congruent with reality of God's wise and loving design, and then tragically open our bodies to those lies and let them into our muscle memories, we allow an ideological cancer to infect our souls. We live at odds with reality. And a result, and as a result, we struggle to thrive because reality does not adjust itself to our illusions. And that's what living, according to lies is. It's living in a false reality. It's a fantasy of the lies making. That's the death Jesus is referring to never able quite to live life to the fullest, never really able to thrive according to God's wisdom and design, always hitting a short ceiling on your joy and your peace because lies have created an illusion that we live in. So do you think that you've escaped becoming a slave to cultural ideas that run counter to the kingdom of Jesus? Do you think that you've missed this? Has this infected you? I think it's infected all of us. Now, what I want to do now is is just show five ways that even Christians, like common Christians, have been affected by lies that really show that our lives, if we're really to take an honest account of them, they don't quite have harmony with the way of Jesus and his teachings. So I I want to point to five different things that we've adopted. Individualism, consumerism, careerism, politicism, and tribalism. All are at odds with the kingdom of Jesus, individualism. Now, if you were to read the New Testament carefully, you'd be shocked at how communal, like family-oriented the Christian faith is. It's not a private matter. It's certainly personal, but Christianity is not private at all. In fact, you can't fulfill much of any of the commands in the New Testament unless you are seriously rooted in and committed to a community of believers. You cannot experience healthy, progressive growth in Christ-likeness without others deep in your life. An example of Christian community, that, that, like, what I really mean by this, I was listening to a pastor talk about how he meets with men from his community and they present their budgets to each other. They literally know how much the other person makes. They know what their goals are. They know the limitations of their budget. And, and they do that, why? To protect themselves from the love of money. Now, we, we hear that and we think that's weird. That's, that's too personal. That's private. And we think that's weird until you read the acts from Ananias and Sophia were killed because they kept knowledge of their money to themselves because they loved their money look at the most basic commands in the New Testament. They all necessarily require that we're living in transparent community. So all I'm saying here is if you read the New Testament and see how serious it is about living in community, then you look at our culture or even our lives, the question we have to ask ourselves is, do you think the New Testament has shaped your life more or our culture has shaped your life more? Our individualistic culture. Most of us protect our very private, isolated lives. We bought into society's vision of life more than Jesus's. We believe lies. And Jesus is spot on when he says that these lies will lead to death, to spiritual death. You will not thrive. Here's some stats on individualism. What's the, What has been the product of our isolated, self-protected lives? of Americans over 45 are chronically lonely. Only 8% of Americans report having important conversations with their neighbors in a given year. In 1950, less than 10% of households were single-person households, now nearly 30% are. The majority of children born to women under 30 are born into single-parent households. The fastest-growing political group is unaffiliated. The fastest-growing religious group is unaffiliated. Researchers in Britain asked pastors to describe their most common issue they have to address with their parishioners. 76% said loneliness and mental health. Former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy wrote in the Harvard Business Review, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. Individualism is a lie that will destroy us because lies lead to death consumerism too. Our culture has trained us to be takers, not givers. It's trained us to live in excess, not simplicity. It's trained us to make decisions that serve me, not others. It's trained us to think that enough is never enough and more is still not enough. Our expectations basically in life more and more over the course of our life balloon, don't they? We want more and more, expect more and more, need more and more. In this mindset, okay, it's breached the church, hasn't it? It's common even amongst Christian community. We pick churches on what they do for me, if I like them, if we get what we want, if we're not bored, if they're not too demanding, right? And We see this even with wealth. Think about how we think about wealth. If you have a car, if you eat three meals a day, and if you have more than one pair of shoes, you are in the top 5% of the wealthiest of the world. Now, we don't think like that, do we? We think wealth is lavishness and excess, the things we see on social media, people rolling up in their vehicle. I don't know what a fancy vehicle is, but <laughs> certainly not one that I have. But I have more than one pair of shoes, and I eat three meals a day, and I have a car. So therefore, I am wealthy by literally most basic standards. We don't think like that, and why is that? Why, don't, why doesn't that connect with us? Because we are affected by our time. We are consumers, and therefore, we have a hard time being givers and servants. So we read the New Testament, Jesus' way of life, and we see that the early church just shared and they gave everything. They they were open-handed with everything they had. They were generous and they held everything loosely. There was a simplicity to their lives that would look strange to us, almost cultish to us, weird to us, and it's because we believe lies. And again, look at your life in the pages of the Bible, and what do you think has affected us more, Jesus's kingdom or another kingdom? Third, careerism. And this is in the workplace, but this can also be in the home. So this applies to every single one of us here. Think about this with me. In your granddad's generation, in my granddad's generation, he took a job when he was in his 20s, and then he retired from that same job, typically. That is so foreign to us now, isn't it? Because we treat our careers like a form of salvation. The next move, the next upgrade, the next promotion, the next switch, we treat it like it's going to bring heaven down to earth and fulfill us and give us purpose and make us deeply happy. Now, that's a cultural idea. Now, I want to be careful here. Work is very important. The Bible says a lot about our work. We should definitely be using materials and opportunities to meet physical and emotional needs. I'm not saying work is bad, but I am saying that the idolatrous energy we put into our career is because of the lie that our jobs should be personally fulfilling. We believe the lie that our careers, the perfect job, can fulfill us when the only thing that will actually fulfill us is when heaven actually comes down to earth and Jesus returns. That's when we'll actually be fulfilled. Fourth, politicism. Oh boy, have we bought into this one. We think one party has it right, the other has it wrong. When Jesus' kingdom, it really cannot be neatly fit into one category, one party. Tom Holland, and he's actually not even a Christian. He's a A a secular-minded person. He writes a book called Dominion where he traces how much of the good ideas, like the moral ideas we have in our Western culture today, which is godless, actually comes from Christianity. He says, here's five things that Christianity early on introduced, which are now traditional to us, but were then really radical. Monogamous, lifelong heterosexual marriage—that was strange in the Greco-Roman Empire— The value of children and family and the unborn. That was strange in the Greco-Roman Empire. Caring for the poor, the sick, the uneducated, and the marginalized. That was definitely different back then. Radical diversity, fourthly. And lastly, peaceful. It was a peaceful community, meaning they didn't take up sword against Rome. That was the kingdom of Jesus in its very beginning. But if you were listening to those those things I just said, that does not fit into one neat political category, does it? On one hand, it sounds conservative. On the other hand, it sounds, what we would say, progressive. Yet, politicism, this this idea that a right party or a politician or a leader will somehow fix everything, it's a lie that we believe because we think it'll usher in some sort of utopia. Political majority or power, it was never for a moment considered by the early church. Did you know that? It wasn't a concern of theirs. They lived according to the kingdom of Jesus, and they suffered as martyrs, and they suffered as outcasts, but never for a moment did they feel sorry for themselves. They didn't look for alternative sources of hope outside of Jesus's kingdom. So again, does our life, what we think, what we feel, match what we see in scripture, or is it a cultural lie that we have adopted? Lastly, tribalism. New York Times columnist and author and Christian David Brooks writes this about tribalism. Tribalists seek out easy categories in which some people are good and others are bad. Tribalism seems like a way to restore the bonds of community. It certainly does bind people together, but it actually is the dark twin of community. Community is connection based on mutual affection. Tribalism is connection based on mutual hatred. Community is based on common humanity. Tribalism is based on common foe. Tribalism is always erecting boundaries and creating friend-enemy distinction, and this is just the air we breathe, isn't it? Humans gather together on the basis of common fear and foe, and this has been cultivated in our thoughts and into our instincts by our hyper-extreme, identity-driven culture, We believe if you don't agree with me, then you're my enemy. Here's what the Bible says, though. Love your enemies. Reconcile with your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Share meal with your enemies. This is why the church, the kingdom of Jesus in its early formation, was just scandalous and jaw-dropping because he had Jews and Gentiles, men, women, families, masters, and their servants, all living life together. These people who culturally would never belong in the same room were actually family. Now, we could go on about romanticism and hedonism and fanaticism, sports, the sports culture, and racism, but the point is we are just as dominated by the lies of our time as the Pharisees were. And if we're honest, our lives look much different than the life that we see in the pages of the Gospels and of the New Testament. I know I like to think, we like to think that we're resilient, that we're self-determining. We're not. We're far more easily malleable, easily influenced by our culture than we like to admit and we have without a thought taken in its lies. So here's what I would say would be good practice this week. Honestly examine your life and ask yourself, what lies have I taken in? A a dear friend of mine had the courage this week to look me in the eyes and ask me, hey, here's what's wrong, here's what's wrong here, here's what's wrong here, here's where I'm struggling, here's where I'm, what do you think is wrong with me? Can you pinpoint the source of that? the origin of that he had the guts and the courage to invite me into his life and to give him a moment of self-awareness and clarity do you have a person like that in your life who you trust enough that they won't have an agenda they don't they're not trying to manipulate you but just you can invite in your life have your walls down not be defensive and invite them to speak into your life and identify here's the lie that you're believing here's the thing that you've adopted that's actually creating death, not life. Let me give you some self-awareness. That might be a good practice for each and every one of us this week. And if you don't, do things like this, confession, transparency, community, then you will more than likely remain in the darkness and you will not thrive and you will continue to be enslaved by lies. So our choice is we can stay in the illusion in the fantasy that our lives have created, we can live in darkness and in lies, or we can cross into the light of life. So Jesus does this in verse 12. Back to verse 12. The claim, he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we have a choice now between darkness and light. The light has broken into the darkness. We have a choice now which way we're going to go. I think a helpful way to think about darkness and lies, illusion, fantasy, is asking ourselves the question, what's my vision of the good life? Have you guys heard that phrase before, the good life? Like, what's your vision of the good life? I I come across it all the time when I'm reading. I don't know where it came from. But I think it's a very helpful way to self-examine. What's your vision of the good life? What would you say to that? What would it be? Would your response to that question look anything like the life of Jesus? Think about his life for a moment. He wasn't wealthy, but he had enough. He sacrificed and served nonstop, but his life was truly rich with friends and meaning. He didn't have power by human standards, but he was resilient. He died a criminal's death, but he died beautifully. And most important, he lived continually within the very life of God through the Spirit. He just walked in the Spirit. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived the good life, (laughs) who's ever captured what we call the good life. And he, as I quoted earlier, he showed up to reality in such a way that, that he flourished and thrived, in a way that is congruent with the Creator's wisdom and good intentions for his creation. So Jesus, he shows us what the good life is. I think we know that. I think we know that there's something attractive and and, compelling about Jesus' life. But why do we resist? I mean, even still, why do we choose darkness knowingly, consciously? Why do we still believe lies? Here's why. Deep down, we just don't think God is going to get it right. We think God's going to get it wrong. We think, God, if we give him our life, if we walk into the light, release these lies, these cultural ideas that we think will make us happy, we think if we take that risky step of faith, God's going to get it wrong. We might not get the good life, in other words. Ignatius of Loyola, I think he lived in the 15th, 16th century. He was the founder of the Jesuits, which was a community that uh, trained themselves to seek God in all things. Here's how he defines sin. Sin. I like this a lot. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is only my deepest happiness. But you'll never, ever believe that if you believe lies, and you'll never believe that if you prefer the darkness and your vision of the good life. Honestly, I don't know if you've hit it yet, but you will if you keep on going with Jesus. Honestly, there will come a time in your walk with God where it's very obvious that it's your will versus God's will. Here's what you want. I mean, deep down in the central part of your being, here's what you think you cannot live without. And here's what God wants for you. And those will come into conflict, and you will have a choice. Clear as day, you will have a choice at that moment if you're just going to stay in the darkness and live in the illusion and keep your version of the good life or if you're going to take that radical step of faith and release all demands and expectations on your life and go the way of Jesus. That, that day is coming for some of you. But what God wants, what Jesus, the Son of God wants, is only your deepest happiness. That's why he's calling you into the light. Another question I have when I look at Jesus is how he must be exhausted just continually debating, continually explaining himself, continually correcting their way of thinking. Why does Jesus keep picking these fights? Why does Jesus keep going in dialogue with people who are never going to get it? Why does he do that? It's because he will not spare one ounce of energy to demolish the lies that we believe because he only wants our deepest happiness. Mark 1 says this, the time is fulfilled The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Each of us need to examine ourselves and see where we need to repent. We need to repent of lies. We need to repent of control of our lives, of final say of our lives. We need to repent of unrepentance, of unwillingness to change. And if not, you may find yourself just like these Pharisees who have zero capacity to truly see Jesus for who he is rather than live in the illusion. But if you do repent and come to him out of darkness into light, then he becomes the light of life. He says, I am the light of life, which means... Jesus makes sense of everything. Like I said before, living in the illusion puts a short ceiling on your life. You get little sparkles and spurts of joy and peace and wonder here and there. But the life with Jesus, that ceiling is removed. He just makes sense of everything. And that's what he's getting after as he's calling you out of darkness and into light. So here's what it looks like to come to Jesus recognizing that he is the light of life. It means this. A lot of changes happen. A lot of changes happen. It means instead of my purpose being to construct a life that is all about my promotion and my comfort, my purpose is to have the image of Jesus formed within me for the good of others. Instead of my success being about money and fame and respect or whatever, success now is faithful obedience and trusting love to Jesus. Instead of love, being about what makes me happy, love is about what makes others happy because I'm already happy in Jesus. Instead of marriage being about for my happiness, it's for my holiness. Instead of my kids being about my happiness, they are for Jesus' glory. Instead of my neighbor being an awkward nuisance or a superficial friendship, they're a person made in the image and likeness of God who's loved by God and placed in my life for me to love and lead to Jesus. Instead of suffering being just character development and self-improvement. It's Jesus's kind hands shaping me, changing me into a selfless person who's detached from worldly selfish hopes and whose hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. The shift from darkness of lies to light of truth in Jesus is life as it ought to be. So I hope that you can see that the way of Jesus, it's actually congruent with reality. It's actually a life of freedom and a life of joy. So will you step into the light? I believe the Holy Spirit now in some of you is prodding and challenging and convicting and calling you deeper into the light and out of lies and darkness. So will you do it? Jesus now, lastly, holds up One shred of evidence, one image for you to consider that might help you take that next step. Look at me, look with me in verses 28 and 29. This is the light piercing the darkness. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I I always do the things that are pleasing to him. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I am the light of the world, that the Father has really been with me all along, that my words are not just catchy pop psychology, but his words are life themselves. When you lift me up, then you will know that I am the light of the world. When Jesus says lifting up, that phrase, he's used it a number of times. He's referring to his death on the cross. What's so persuasive about the cross? This is what Jesus holds up for each one of us to consider to move us deeper into the light and out of darkness. What's so persuasive to our hearts about the cross? Here's what's amazing about the cross. Here's Jesus, an innocent man who's only ever done good and ever blessed anyone else dying a horrendous death that I and you deserved. He absorbed the wrath of God fully for you and I on the cross. And he did that while we were far from him, while we were enemies. We had nothing to offer. We still don't have anything to offer, nothing to give. As an act of just infinite kindness, Jesus experiences the just wrath of God instead of me and instead of you. So here's the thing to consider. If God did that for you while you were an enemy, now that you're reconciled, now that you're a friend, don't you think he has only the best interest at heart for you? Can you believe like Ignatius says that God, what what he wants for you is only your deepest happiness? The cross proves it to be true he died for you while you were his enemy, won't he certainly be with you till the end as a friend? If he loved you then, certainly doesn't he love you now. And so whatever he's asking you to release, and he is, whatever he's asking you to give up, and and whatever lies, whatever darkness He only has good reasons for it. And it might be scary. It might change everything. It might alter your life from here on out. It might just change everything. But he has only your deepest happiness at the center of his motivations. Again, Jesus shares dialogue with people who will not change, who cannot change. These Pharisees, they're not going to change. Why does he do that? Here's another answer. Here's another answer to consider. That's just what light does. Light invades darkness by the very nature of being light. It can do no other. Jesus, therefore then, he will not stop invading your darkness because light will always find a way to invade darkness. Light, it's not intimidated or grossed out or exhausted or overcome from darkness. The light shines the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Light floods the darkness and it always will. It's a law of the universe. It's not going to change like gravity, like photosynthesis, like thermodynamics. Light just invades darkness because it is light. So Jesus will constantly invade your darkness and call you to life in him. That's just what he's going to do from here on out. So will you let him in? Will you yield your mind to him, your heart to him, your body to him, so he can begin to undo the damage that these lies have done to you and make you a new creation, someone who thinks and feels and lives according to the truth and therefore can truly live. In a few minutes here, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, I actually want to close in a different way today. I want to start doing some of the stuff uh, at the end of our, our time together in the Word, more response time. So what I want to do is all of us to stand up now together, and I just want to pray together. I want to pray together. Ben, you can come on up here and, and begin playing and get ready. Behind me on the screen is just going to be a short prayer, a short prayer that I wrote. It's two slides only, but I want to pray this out loud together in response to Jesus being the light of life, the light of the world, breaking into the darkness. This is a moment for us, each and every one of us, to yield ourselves to God and to ask him to have our way with us. And so let's go ahead and pray this together. God, I want to belong to you and you alone. I offer my mind to you. I offer my will to you. I offer my being to you. I have believed lies for far too long, and I need your truth to set me free. I invite the light of life into my life, and I ask you, God, to flood my heart with your light. I turn from lies of self and success, and I embrace a new way of living in the light. Jesus, thank you for dying for me so that I know you always have my deepest happiness in mind. Holy Spirit, bring the truth to bear upon my heart so that I can be healed. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.